0: My name is Dr. Kyaliba mm-hmm. Kobernick, and I'm excited to welcome you to the Mindful Woman Mothers podcast. I'm a clinical psychologist and a mother to four delicious girls. Here, we'll explore what it means to be a mindful woman through every stage of motherhood. On today's podcast, I'm excited to be speaking with Lily Nichols, registered dietitian, certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. Her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and sensible, all my favorite things. Her best-selling book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, an online course, presents a revolutionary approach for managing gestational diabetes. Her work has not only helped tens of thousands of women manage their gestational diabetes, most without the need for blood sugar-lowering medication, but has also influenced nutrition policies internationally. Lily's clinical expertise and extensive background in prenatal nutrition have made her a highly sought-after consultant and speaker in the field. Lily's second book, which I enjoyed reading very much, called Real Food for Pregnancy, is an evidence-based book looking at the gap between conventional prenatal nutrition guides and what's optimal for mother and baby. With over 930 citations, this is the most comprehensive text on prenatal nutrition to date, which makes me really happy. And that is why I'm so excited for the chance for us to talk today. So Lily, can you start by telling us what does it mean to eat real food? Why is that important?
1: Sure. So, you know, there's a lot of different definitions floating around about what real food means. I think a lot of people, I mean, like anything in nutrition, people have different definitions. Um, For me, real food is kind of another way to describe whole unprocessed foods with fewer words. Um, And not only are we thinking about, uh, I think what most people think of unprocessed versus processed foods, like whole grains versus refined grains or white flour and white sugar, right? but also taking it a step further to look at, you know, from an ancestral perspective, what were humans eating, you know, hundreds of years ago even, um, and how did we consume those foods? So nowadays I feel like it's pretty normal for people to like just make assumptions that say, you know, low fat yogurt is a whole food. Um, technically it's different than how milk comes out from cows, right? Cow milk comes with fat and that fat actually serves some important functions and has some unique um, nutritional um, properties that are not found in the skimmed part of the milk or the dairy products made from them. So when I'm talking about real food, I'm talking about um, not taking pieces out of the whole food and thinking that we have Improved upon what nature provided for us. So, another example is like whole eggs versus only eating the egg whites. It's not that egg whites are necessarily like a super processed food or bad for you necessarily. It's just that you've taken out part of the whole egg that again has unique nutritional properties that we don't find in the egg white. So, I just like to take it just one step further beyond you know, single ingredient foods, you know, cause egg whites are a single ingredient food, but looking at, okay, how did this come in nature? What are the nutritional benefits of all of the parts of that food? Um, and how can we like get the most varied intake from the least processed foods available? Um, and typically when you do eat that way, you just get a much more balanced macro and micronutrient intake. So it's less about, I think our guidelines tend to focus on, you know, this nutrient is good and this nutrient is bad. And therefore we can improve upon this food by taking the fat out of the milk and then it's better. Right. Um, and so I think we just need to kind of take a step back and give a little bit of credence to, okay, human beings did quite well Mm -hmm. eating unprocessed whole foods, AKA real foods for millennia. And, uh, here we are, you know, in the past hundred years have, have, <laughs> I think made a mistake thinking that we can drastically improve upon that via a lot of processing.
0: Yeah, done, done a pretty poor job. So, so you mentioned the idea of eating ancestrally or eating similar to how people ate hundreds of years ago, and you hinted to this, but how, can you talk more about how do we know that eating similar to how people ate hundreds of years ago is actually better for us? Like, why isn't it that if I eat lower fat, that I'll be less fat? Why doesn't that? Not, why is that logic not follow?
1: Right. Well, some of this is tricky because we end up having to rely on like anthropological data, which some people in the science community would not think is reliable because it's just, I mean, that's essentially anecdotal data, right? It's just based on people's experience. So like, how do we know it's good? Um, We do know from like the work of um, Weston Price, who was around in the early 1900s, He was a dentist who cataloged um, people's dietary intakes in sort of remote, isolated, unmodernized areas all over the world, actually, not just in like a single country. Um, And he noted that there, he also did nutritional analyses on their diet. He looked at their health. Of course, he was looking at their teeth and their bone structure and their propensity for disease and also looking at that within the groups who stuck to their traditional diet and to the groups who had started incorporating what he called foods of modern commerce, which were at that time mainly like refined grains, um, white sugar, um, those kinds of foods, like br- think like British, like colonial <laughs> kind of foods where they go into to these communities and introduce all of these Sort of Western and European commodities. And then those things end up displacing the natural foods that they would normally um, be eating. And he found that health just dramatically declined very quickly, even within one generation of people who were, say, you know, born and raised by parents and grandparents who had eaten their traditional diet since the beginning of time and to suddenly changing their diet within one generation. And their, their kids were more likely to have problems. We also have to remember this was like before the era of supplementation and fortification or even isolation and identification of many of the vitamins. So when he was looking at the um, differences in their nutritional intake, there were things that he didn't have a name for yet. Mm -hmm. Like, activator X which we now know is probably vitamin K2 like there was no name for it, it hadn't been identified yet mm-hmm. um and you know people will, will poke holes at um at his work but at the end of the day we we really don't even have nearly as many communities that have been unaffected by globalization and the introduction of processed foods so we don't necessarily always have examples of these thriving indigenous communities, they're getting harder and harder and harder to find. So I think he does offer kind of a unique data set. Now, to take it like into the modern age, I think we can kind of tie in what we've now learned about the field called epigenetics, which is how our environment or nutrient intake or other things can influence the expression of our genes. Like we've now learned that what we think as like hereditary Um, factors like oh I inherited this propensity for this disease from my parents or grandparents that can actually be influenced by the environment in which or the nutrient intake of our mother or our parents or even our grandparents that can be passed down generation after generation Um, and we know that influencing those with certain nutritional factors can improve those um, health outcomes and risks for disease in these children later on. Like great example of this in my work with gestational diabetes is we know that being exposed to uncontrolled blood sugar during pregnancy. So like poorly managed gestational diabetes can increase that child's risk of type 2 diabetes by anywhere from 6 to 19 times. Like not 19%, like 19 times higher risk of developing diabetes later on. And that comes all the way back to the way that the pancreas is developing and the exposure to blood sugar and the baby's production of insulin in utero. I mean, it's so many different factors, but that's one example. You can pull in a whole bunch of different micronutrient examples, which would all have been higher in an ancestral nutrition Eating pattern, um, in what price uh, observed, such as choline or vitamin A or vitamin D from sun exposure. I mean, there's so many different things that can have these epigenetic um, influences. So it it's kind of an interesting quandary because we don't have like that. What people want is like a randomized controlled trial that shows this and that, and and you you simply can't do that because it's un ethical to expose a group of pregnant women to a deficient diet or a sufficient diet. The best you can do is like provide them with the RDA and then provide another group with a higher amount. Mm-hmm. But even that you're usually only controlling for one nutrient, not multiple nutrients at a time. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of, kind of where we're at. I know you asked about low fat. So if you want to ask that question again and have me expand upon that, I can, I can go into that.
0: Yeah, I I think I just want to ask, do you see at this point, um, have you seen studies where they, where there is a look at eating real food and what what do we see different?
1: So there was a study on the first ever study done looking at what they called a paleo diet in pregnancy. Um, and that was, I believe in 2019, I wrote about it on my blog. I should probably pull up the post so I can speak more intelligently about the study, but from what I remember, um, so a paleo diet and granted, I would just want to qualify that different cultures all around the world have different ways of eating based on what's available in their local area and what's seasonal and whatnot. But for the purposes of this study, they were, um, defining a paleo diet as the, as one that eliminates refined sugars, refined vegetable oils, grains, legumes, and dairy. Um, and I just want to say, I don't personally believe those, those whole foods always need to be eliminated, but the, for the purposes of this study, that's how they defined a paleo diet. Therefore, what they were eating was you know meat, fish, uh, eggs, nuts, seeds, vegetables, fruit, tuber, vegetables, you know, olives, avocado, that sort of thing. So a paleo diet sort of automatically takes out the process stuff. Um, And even though this is just kind of a smaller observational study and the people were just, they were self-selected, right? So the people who are already following a paleo diet were in the paleo group and the people not following a paleo diet were in the other group, but the outcomes were far better in the self-selected paleo eaters. So they had, um, better blood sugar levels, lower rates of gestational diabetes, lower rates of anemia, um, lower gestational weight gain. So a lesser chance that they were gaining like way outside the guidelines. Those are probably the three parameters that I remember off the top of my head. But again, I have a, a blog post on it. So at least from that study, although it's small, although it's obs- only observational, it would give a little more credence to the benefits of eating a diet that's more based on whole foods and doesn't have all the processed stuff in it.
0: yeah yeah and and I think one thing I remember from your book is that um, if we look at the nutrients that we need in pregnancy like you mentioned choline, those things come and are most easily absorbed from real foods
1: Exactly exactly yeah and we have pretty consistent data both in and outside of pregnancy that the concentration of micronutrients in your diet, is inversely related to the amount of refined carbohydrates in your diet. So like white flour and white sugar and any type of refined sugar, which makes perfect sense, right? Because our refined flour is removed from the fiber that's in there, the B vitamins that's in there. Sure. They might fortify a handful of them, but it's not doesn't have the full nutritional profile that a whole grain would have the refined sugar. Of course, does not have like all the nutrients that you would see with it if it was in the form of fruit or some other um, natural sugar so of course um, you would have lower micronutrient density plus like more pasta and crackers and white bread and that kind of stuff that you eat you're naturally from like an energetic perspective you're just displacing other foods that have more nutrient density built into them naturally. So it makes perfect sense, but sometimes people are still kind of surprised to hear it because it's like, Whoa, this could really make a big difference on, on my nutritional status.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I have two questions. (laughs) So, um, so the kinds of foods that you talked about with the paleo diet, meat, fish, fruits, and vegetables, basically, um, right. What of those, what are, what are some of like super foods that that you would think of for pregnancy that really like pack a big punch in terms of those um, nutrients that we're looking for?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, any of them have their own unique benefits. So I'll I'll throw that out there. Um, But I do tend to highlight some of the animal foods because when we look at the nutrients that are um, based on their requirements in pregnancy are most increased during pregnancy, And also look at where most pregnant women fall short. It's usually in the nutrients that are found either solely or in highest concentrations in certain animal foods. So like the choline that we already brought up, that's a B vitamin-like compound that works hand in hand with folate for optimizing brain development, for the prevention of neural tube defects. It enhances placental health. It enhances nutrient transfer across the placenta. So like baby gets higher levels of nutrients, especially DHA tends to be like transported with choline. It's been shown to reduce the risk of preeclampsia and overall inflammation. Um, It also plays a really important role in liver health. So probably it would help reduce the risk of of cholestasis in pregnancy. Um, Anyways, choline is something that 94% of pregnant women are not Consuming enough of. Um, the recommended amount for it was set in 1998 and is based on data from men. But we now have randomized controlled trials in pregnant women showing that actually consuming more than double that recommendation optimizes babies' brain development at all time points that they've measured this in the infants and toddlers of mothers who consumed the higher choline diet. Um, choline is found in highest concentrations in egg yolks and liver. So, um, certainly because more people are consuming it and it's also easier just to consume more eggs than it is liver. That's usually going to be the number one source. Usually eggs explain more than 50% of the choline in our diets. And then the remainder tends to come from either other animal foods. Of course, liver is super concentrated, but again, if you're eating it, you're probably eating it in fairly small quantities and then, secondary to all of those animal foods and dairy products, you're looking at um, certain vegetables like cruciferous vegetables, um, broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, uh, nuts and seeds, and then also beans and legumes. Although, just to put it in perspective, when I'm talking about like how nutrient dense eggs are, a single egg yolk has the same amount of choline as two cups of cooked beans. So from a perspective of like, are you really going to be able to meet your choline requirements from just like beans and broccoli? Probably not because you'd have to eat such a large quantity that you'd be extremely bloated and probably very gassy. (laughs) 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 So eggs certainly are, are, you know, top of the list. Um, Another one that uh, tends to provide a lot of micronutrients would be red meat. Um, and that's something that, again, because our dietary guidelines have been set from a very um, you know exclusionary sort of place where they're like, limit your saturated fat and cholesterol at all costs. A lot of people, especially women, are not consuming red meat very regularly, but red meat has some of the highest concentrations Concentrations of vitamin B12 and iron and zinc, um, vitamin A, uh, selenium, uh, vitamin B6, like a lot of nutrients that are really important to your health, your energy levels, to baby's development for the prevention of anemia, for example. Um, So, red meat is certainly a, a beneficial one, especially if you're getting some that is sort of like a tougher cut of meat. So it has a lot of collagen in there and needs to be slow cooked so that it is like, uh, easy enough to eat. So, you know, you got your super tender steak, which has like barely any connective tissue in it. And then you have like your chuck roast or Any kind of like meat on the bone, like oxtail or beef shank, or I don't even know, like all the cuts off the top of my head, but those ones that have a lot of um, connective tissue, especially if it's like has a bone in there. So you have the connective tissue that's attaching the muscle to the bone. That's where you get your really high concentrations of collagen. And those are also really beneficial for you during pregnancy because the nutrients within there also help your own connective tissue your bones, skin, hair, nails, your uterus is 800% more collagen at term than it does pre-pregnancy. And of course you're growing a brand new human being that has a whole bunch of collagen. So like collagen makes up one third of the total proteins in our body. It's just vitally important. And some of the amino acids in collagen, um, become what's called conditionally essential in pregnancy, meaning outside of the state of pregnancy, your body can make up for a diet low in collagen because you can make those amino acids from other proteins. And in pregnancy, you need such a high quantity that your body can't keep up with the demand. Um, And so when we look back kind of ancestrally at the foods that were really encouraged for preconception, pregnancy, postpartum recovery, you often see things like roasts, stews, Bone broth, um, meat on the bone, all these collagenous <laughs> like animal foods naturally seem to be recommended. Like you see across culturally a big emphasis on things like chicken soup, postpartum. It makes perfect sense, you know, when you think about all the changes that your collagen and connective tissue and skin and muscles, um, joints have to go
0: through in, in pregnancy and birth. Mm-hmm. So, about how many times a week would you say would be a, a good amount to have eggs and meat?
1: Well, with eggs, you know, so if we're talking about like the from a choline perspective, since that, in my opinion, is like the major nutrient in eggs that would be tricky to find in high enough quantities in other places of your diet if you're looking at sort of like the low threshold of the current recommended intake, which is 450 milligrams for pregnancy, two eggs will get you about halfway there um, depending on the size of the egg yolk, the larger the egg yolk, the more choline. So if you're buying like jumbo eggs, you might get more choline than if you're buying like the small or the medium sized eggs. Um, So from that perspective, having two a day, seems like a pretty good idea because that gets you about halfway there. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you don't have to just eat eggs as like eggs for breakfast, but they can be incorporated into other things like muffins or I have a recipe for like a baked custard, a pot de creme that uses egg yolks. So there can be other ways to fit it in. Um, And also remember, you are getting choline from other places, too. So while I think this is a beneficial way to get a really concentrated source, you do also get it from other places. When it comes to, um, meat and meat on the bone, I mean, there, there's so many differences, um, you know, culturally in people's preferences on consuming those foods. I do think like once a day, at least having some form of animal protein is helpful just from the perspective of, of getting your micronutrient needs met, like your vitamin B12 and iron and zinc. Um, but I do recommend kind of rotating through your options so it doesn't, always have to be meat meat. Like maybe it's poultry, maybe it's fish, maybe it's even beans. I know not animal foods, but just from a protein perspective, like even beans or lentils coming in, just kind of rotating through your options, maybe dairy, like a high protein dairy option, like, um, cottage cheese or, um, you know, paneer or Greek yogurt. Um, Because each of the different protein foods has a different micronutrient profile as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as far as, you know, the collagen rich ones, probably about three times a week, I think would be helpful. I don't think you can overdo it. So if you feel some, sometimes people feel this way, like during pregnancy at different stages, they feel really drawn to something for a period of time. Um, I know for both of my pregnancies, it was that way. So maybe for a while, I was like really drawn to having this soup with bone broth, you know, and I'd have that for like a week or a week and a half, and then you kind of get tired of it. And then suddenly you really want citrus. And so you have more citrus during that time. And sometimes you want more dairy and you have more of that. But as long as it's overall varied, um, I think looking more at your micronutrient intake over a period of a week or several weeks versus getting really nitpicky on every single day, um, is helpful. Like, yeah, overall nutrition matters, but we also, our diets naturally are going to be more or less concentrated in different nutrients
0: day by day. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sounds pretty challenging to be vegetarian <laughs> during pregnancy.
1: Well, it, it would be, it can be challenging in in some ways, um, from, certainly from a protein perspective, um, although that's actually the least of my concerns, interestingly, um, it can be a little challenging because we now have data showing that, you know, the protein requirements of pregnancy were significantly underestimated. So the first study ever to look at that was um, 2015, the first study to directly measure protein requirements at different stages of pregnancy. So for late pregnancy, the guidelines were found to be an underestimate by 73%, which is pretty significant. Um, So in late pregnancy, you you definitely want to be even more aware of your protein intake. Um, There was actually a recent study I highlighted in one of my Instagram briefs that found about two-thirds of pregnant women in their third trimester were not meeting that Higher target of protein, and that's about for you know a woman who starts her pregnancy around 150 pounds. That's about 100 110 grams of protein a day. Um, and if you're not regularly eating animal foods, it, it is a bit trickier in that you do need to make an additional effort to have some protein foods at every single meal. And it's a bit more challenging when you're vegetarian because the protein is simply not as concentrated in those foods, unless you're using like supplemental protein powders or other things. Um, But my bigger concern is the micronutrients. So for people who want to really dive into that, there's like a section at the end of chapter three of Real Food for Pregnancy going through the challenges of a vegetarian diet. Um, I also have a shorter blog post on my site. If you just search vegetarian diet on my site, you can pull up that blog post that walks through some of those nutrients, just to give you an idea of like, these would be the things to look out for. These would be the things you might need to supplement with extra. Um, yeah, it does create kind of a big nutritional
0: challenge. You know, in terms of talking, I know you have a whole book dedicated just to gestational diabetes and how big of a role does nutrition play in pregnancy complications?
1: Well, so first I'll give the qualifier that not all pregnancy complications are within our control or entirely preventable. But uh, from what I found, you can stack the deck in your favor to either reduce your chances of a pregnancy complication or reduce the severity of a pregnancy complication. So some of the most common ones are gestational diabetes. That is the most common one, like 18%. Or more of pregnancies are affected by that. And then, second to that, would probably be preeclampsia or high blood pressure in pregnancy, which again, like the stats will vary depending on which research study and population they looked at, but maybe about 10% or so of pregnancies, or sometimes they say only 5%, can be affected by that. Certainly, we know there's a lot of different nutritional factors that play into how well your body adapts to the demands of pregnancy. And it's kind of like a stress test on your body. So mm-hmm. with gestational diabetes, for example, we know that in later pregnancy, your insulin resistance is going to be higher naturally. And that means your body doesn't respond as well to insulin. So it may have trouble lowering your blood sugar. if Your pancreas has not adapted appropriately where it is designed to increase the production of insulin pretty significantly to account for that in later pregnancy. So if something in that system is not working as intended, or you're already starting your pregnancy with some degree of insulin resistance, like prediabetes, whether it was diagnosed or not, then that can kind of stack the deck against your favor, right? Um, and from that perspective, there's a lot of different things that could help out in terms of like lowering your insulin resistance going into pregnancy or even during pregnancy. So some of those things are uh, maintaining healthy weight, um, consuming enough of certain micronutrients that help with how your body responds to insulin, which include magnesium, certain B vitamins, um, chromium vitamin D, did I already say magnesium? Um, Those things can all influence your body's response to insulin. And certainly you can give your body the upper hand by not uh, triggering such a huge glucose load, which then demands your pancreas to produce that much more insulin by just not eating as many of the refined carbohydrates and sugars. Just like give your pancreas A break, you know, (laughs) like if you're eating more whole food carbohydrates and making sure you're consuming them alongside a source of protein and or fat or fiber that really lessens the glucose spike and thus lessens the amount of work that your pancreas has to do to bring your blood sugar back into the normal range. So any of those things can be helpful, although none of them are like a silver bullet like some people just develop it and some people don't sometimes people with you know terrible nutritional intake seem to get by scotch-free and have an easy pregnancy and other people eat super super well and still find themselves faced with some pregnancy complications and given what we know about epigenetics like some of that can go all the way back to Previous generations, like oh, did your mom have gestational diabetes during her pregnancy? Like that affects your pancreas and your pancreas's ability to adapt to this mm-hmm. current stress test on your blood sugar system. Um, similarly, with preeclampsia or high blood pressure, there's actually a, there's a lot of overlap with the gestational diabetes aspect because blood sugar and blood pressure actually go hand in hand. So we do find regulating blood sugar often helps prevent or lessen high blood pressure or the risk of preeclampsia. Likewise, many different micronutrients reduce the risk of preeclampsia, especially certain minerals, including magnesium, also including all of your electrolytes like sodium and potassium. Turns out you need more of those, not less, which will really confuse people, but I will direct you to chapter seven of real food for pregnancy. Yes. You need more salt. And that actually tends to lower your blood pressure and lessen the issues with preeclampsia altogether. It's very confusing, but I'll just say it goes against everything we thought we knew about preeclampsia. Definitely eating sufficient amounts of protein is helpful sufficient amounts of produce, especially your colorful fruits and vegetables. Not only do those provide you with potassium and magnesium, but they have a lot of different antioxidants, which tend to offset some of the inflammation we see with preeclampsia. We know choline is protective against it. We know glycine, the most abundant amino acid in collagen-rich foods, tends to offset um, preeclampsia. It's It's responsible for the production of elastin, which is what allows your blood vessels to expand and contract appropriately to this huge increase in fluid volume that you have in pregnancy. And if that doesn't go well, your blood pressure goes up, right? If your blood vessels can expand appropriately to accommodate that increased amount of fluid in your circulatory system, then your pressure should also remain low, right? So it comes down to like a lot of different nutritional factors. Mm-hmm. I will say that um, sometimes with preeclampsia, the, the origins can go all the way back to very, very early pregnancy. And therefore, we don't always have as much control over it mm-hmm. as we think we do. Like it probably goes back, you know, preconception, or again, maybe there are some other predisposing factors that are not um, necessarily nutritional related but again i mean it doesn't hurt anything to be prioritizing your health and wellness and nutrient intake and moving your body and managing your stress and eating good food so you may as well try it um but try not to beat yourself up if you do end up with a pregnancy complication
0: Mm. yeah and in like the conventional management of complications like gestational diabetes um, what do you see as potentially some flaws in that management and what do you see as like a healthier or more lo- like logical or helpful approach?
1: So with gestational diabetes, which was really, you know, has been a huge focus of my career and was the focus of my, my first whole book. Uh, certainly I think they get the macronutrient ratios just Flat out wrong. (laughs) So they're recommending you eat like half or more of your diet from carbohydrates, um, or another way to put it, they're, they're recommending you eat 45, 60, 75 grams of carbohydrates at meals, um, depending on where they estimate your energy requirements are. And yet, if you think logically about how they actually diagnosed said gestational diabetes, it's usually with a glucose tolerance test where they're giving you anywhere from 50 to 100 grams of glucose in one sitting. And if your glucose comes out high, then they're like, oh, you have gestational diabetes. Therefore, why would we expect that somebody who can't process 50 to 100 grams of sugar should be able to process 50 plus grams of sugar in the form of carbohydrates every single meal? I mean, it just doesn't even stand up to like, <laughs> A basic, basic sniff doctor. test. <laughs> you know? um, and in practice, I found that that approach often failed, and more than half of my clients would end up on medication or insulin, and that didn't seem right to me. Um, and that's why I developed the approach that's in Real Food for Gestational Diabetes to defend the safety of actually matching your carbohydrates to your body's individual carbohydrate tolerance. I mean, it doesn't seem that revolutionary, but for that field, Uh, where they always had a recommended minimum of carbohydrates has been a pretty big game changer. And we can literally reduce the chances that you need insulin or medication by over 50% by just giving you, and this is again, that's not just my observation. There's a lot of studies that have been done, including randomized controlled trials, giving a lower glycemic index diet or a more limited carbohydrate diet. And I mean, the results speak for themselves. You reduce your um, day long glucose excursions by about 50%. And therefore you also reduce the chances that you are going to need have blood sugar levels at a high enough level that your provider says, Oh my gosh, we need medication or insulin to lower this. Just you can take the strain off of your pancreas by just not providing so many carbohydrates. In addition, if we provide more protein, it tends to just stabilize the blood sugar level. so less crazy spikes and crashes, and just a more even, um, you know, blood sugar pattern. So that's certainly the main the main issue with gestational diabetes. Um, with preeclampsia, I think conventionally the biggest problem is they 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 only focus on salt, mm-hmm. and they focus in the wrong direction. the The answer is to restrict your salt intake. So my opinion with preeclampsia is that they need more attention on promoting nutrient adequacy, especially enough protein. So what I observed clinically is that the women I saw with preeclampsia were eating way too much sugar and refined carbohydrates. Um, and based on the research that we have showing the effect of blood sugar on blood pressure, and also of fructose specifically, which they would be getting in high amounts if they were just mainlining the soda And the fruit juice and and that kind of things that are really high fructose, um, it makes sense. I mean, that makes your blood pressure go up. It's pretty straightforward in, in the research. So if we can put a little more focus on sort of balancing macronutrients, enough protein, choose your quality carbohydrates over the refined ones, and then don't restrict salt intake, I think we'd see a huge shift. Um, and probably a, a lot less need for blood sugar or blood pressure um, lowering medication. Again, I think even with gestational diabetes, there's always going to be a time and place and there's always going to be varying um, severity of symptoms. And so we do need to have these like medications available, but I don't think it needs to be as high of a proportion of said you know, women with that specific complication, um, needing the medication management for it.
0: Mm -hmm. What about, um, other complications like placental abruption? That's something that I've struggled with. So I'm very curious about it.
1: You know, I actually haven't seen any research specifically on placental abruption and
0: nutrition. I'm not sure if you've come across anything. Um, I did see, um, on, so one thing that can cause placental eruption potentially is premature rupture of membranes. Um, mm-hmm. And there are there, I've seen some research on, on factors that can influence premature rupture of membranes. Mm-hmm. So that's my, <laughs> that's yeah, my you thought can probably, process there.
1: Yeah. I mean, if I'm just sort of thinking about this off the cuff, um, For premature rupture of membranes, we have some research on vitamin C, for example, like enhancing the strength of the amniotic sac. So vitamin C is important for um, formation of collagen, collagen cross-linking. I would also think of collagen itself being beneficial. We also know um, copper is involved in collagen production, and that is something found in abundance in um, liver and shellfish, especially oysters, mussels, clams, so I'd be thinking of those, um, those foods. And then I might also look all the way back, like preconception, how, how the menstrual cycle is. We know the menstrual cycle tends to set the stage for a healthy pregnancy. Um, the endometrium is where the embryo first embeds itself and that actually like feeds the embryo, but, um, until the placenta develops and takes over and the process of placentation, they call it like the placenta growing and properly attaching to the endometrium is uh, highly nutrient dependent,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, especially vitamin E uh, vitamin A. So a lot of the fat soluble vitamins tend to be involved in that with vitamin A, your best source would be liver. So it comes back to liver. Um,
0: We're going to talk about some liver there.
1: And then, <laughs> you know it's like nobody's favorite food but uh, it it does come up so frequently because it, like a- at any turn you identify a micronutrients role in something it's like oh liver is the best source like, darn it but it just just is yeah um with vitamin e that's a really interesting one because the it's a kind of a tough one to find in our diets in abundant amounts but we can preserve our vitamin E levels for necessary functions like fighting inflammation and promotion of um, vitamin E like promotes what's called angiogenesis. So like the, the development of new blood vessels, which would be important. That's kind of involved in the placentation part, right? You need like all those blood vessels to form and appropriately attach to the endometrium. Likewise, that plays a role in like, you know, the, the umbilical cord and transfer of nutrients and all of that. And vitamin E can be preserved if you uh, watch your intake of omega 6 fats. These are the ones found in high amounts in refined vegetable oils like soy oil, corn oil, safflower oil. If we go back to ancestral nutrition, these were not the oils that were found in abundance in our diets because we didn't have the industrial machinery to chemically extract the oils from seeds, right? Uh, The plant oils we had were the ones where you could literally practically squeeze it to get the oil out, like olive oil, avocado oil, coconut oil, kind of like your technically fruit oils, not your seed oils. So they found that when the diet is high in omega-6, which for most of us, it is pretty high because vegetable oils have displaced our natural most of our fat intake used to come from animal fats, actually, um, the requirements of vitamin E can actually triple. And this would be almost impossible to meet from your diet alone. It would require a supplement. But if you minimize your intake of omega-6 fats, those the vitamin E molecules don't have to be wasted, so to speak, on taking care of all the oxidative damage that's caused by the omega-6s. So I would also be looking at uh, you know, just the quality of fats in the diet and really encouraging like the whole food, like animal sourced fats, and also like your coconut oil, avocado oil, olive oil would be fine. Um, but specifically the saturated fats they they don't oxidize really. And so they don't waste vitamin E. So your vitamin E status is essentially automatically better. (laughs) If you don't eat a lot of vegetable oils and eat more of your intake from saturated fat, which again, goes counter to everything in the dietary guidelines. Um, but it, it does seem to be important.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, liver back to liver. So any ideas for how to get liver into the diet?
1: Yes. So, uh, like many people, I did not grow up eating liver. Um, so it is not like, a food I feel fondly about in terms of its (laughs) flavor. So uh, a couple options, um, one of my preferred options is to make pate with it. I have a recipe for this on my site. There's a recipe for it in my book as well. Um, So you make pate in a fairly large batch. So you don't have to deal with like the ick factor of dealing with liver and all the cleanup and whatever. So I make a fairly good sized batch and then I freeze it. First of all, eat some fresh because that's when it tastes best when it's like first made, it actually is really, really good. It has like kind of a, almost like a sweet taste to it. It's, it's yes, it's liver, but people are really surprised if you just like take a bite, have it with some crudité or some crackers or sourdough bread or something. It's actually really tasty, super fresh as it sits over time. It doesn't taste as good. So I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, so we keep uh, you know, one jar aside to enjoy fresh. And then the rest of it, I freeze into either ice cube trays or like four ounce Mason jars and then anytime I'm making some dish made with ground meat, such as meatloaf, meatballs, chili. Um, technically, you can do burgers, although I don't really super enjoy the flavor of liver and burgers, so I don't always put it in my burgers. But any kind of like a stew, um, I even have like an Indian spiced stuffed bell pepper recipe in the book that's good. Hide it in a ground meat dish and use a ratio, if you're brand new to it, about three ounces per pound of meat. That usually hides the flavor enough. And then consider just putting it in dishes that have a fair amount of spice to it. I think that's why I don't prefer it in burgers, but in the Indian spiced stuffed bell peppers, you have like curry and turmeric and ginger and stuff. In the um, meatloaf, I have a lot of different herbs and spices. In a chili, again, you have a lot of different herbs and spices in like a bolognese sauce or in meatballs that you're having with a marinara, you have all that oregano and garlic. It just helps to sort of dilute the flavor of the liver. And over time, actually, you might actually start to prefer it because it does add a degree of like umami, that kind of like savory flavor. Um, When it's not super concentrated, it's not super like, I mean, it tastes very minerally, right? It's very high iron. Um, You reduce that when you've like spread it out in another dish. Um, I also have an e-cookbook up on my bookshop that has a recipe for um, savory chicken liver bites, which are surprisingly good. If you're new to liver, chicken liver might be an easier sell. It has a much milder flavor than something like beef liver. so. Those are some options. There's also companies that sell uh, desiccated liver in supplemental form. Which I haven't seen a, a
0: kosher yeah. version of that. So,
1: oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that's a definitely would be a consideration for your audience. Um, yeah. So just try it out.
0: <laughs> yeah, try getting it in. I mean, people people definitely are are very fond of chopped liver. I just am not. So, <laughs> so. Yeah,
1: I usually don't like it straight up. Like I said, those savory chicken liver bites, I think are pretty good. Like dip them in ranch dressing or something. They're pretty tasty. Um, Or sometimes with, you know, the traditional way to serve pate was like on sourdough bread, which has sort of a sourness to it. And then with like sliced gherkin pickles on it. So there's like, again, you have the sour of the sourdough and you have like the crunchy acidity of the pickles It kind of cuts through the richness and the flavor Um, And then also finally, just to say, you don't need massive amounts of liver to, to increase your nutritional stuff. I try to fit in liver once a week for the family, if I can, like every single week, but that doesn't always happen because I'm human, just like anybody else. But I try to sort of rotate through one of those ground meat dishes that has liver in it. So as a whole, as a family, we're probably getting maybe a few ounces of liver per person per week i mean less so for the kids cuz they're little and eating smaller portions but it doesn't have to be a food that's like you eat every single day like a tiny bit fills a huge amount of nutritional gaps so i don't want you to feel like you have to eat liver like constantly you know it's like a it's a self limiting food by by way of its flavor and
0: richness uh huh uh huh so any advice with this like, I mean, all the, by virtue of eating real food, you're going to be involved in more meal prep. Um, and when, when you're busy mom with, um, with running a home can, it it can be pretty overwhelming to do this like meal planning and prep any recommendations around how to do this kind of like realistically.
1: Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I have a blog post called lazy meal planning that I can direct you to, um, because I'm not, some people are like, these really fantastic meal planners who have like a weekly rotating menu plan or different days are for different meals. And I don't know, I'm not there yet. I just, I, my, everything in my body revolts to (laughs) that super structured meal planning. If you are that person and that comes naturally, absolutely. Creating a meal plan could be a great idea. Um, for me, I do this sort of lazy meal planning thing where, Essentially, I'm trying to plan my meals around the protein option because that tends to be the one that goes by the wayside in the chaos, right? We all have like pasta and rice and all these carbs sitting around essentially to fill in on busy nights or if we're ordering in. Again, it tends to be like just really high carb stuff. And so I try to plan around the protein. I try to have enough protein set aside for the meal. So I might plan like one meal that's like a big beef roast or something. And I do that in the instant pot, by the way, people don't have an instant pot. It's an electric pressure cooker, but you could also do it in the slow cooker. So I think, you know, pot roast or stew or something like that. I'll have one meal of that. And by one meal, I make a big one. So it'll carry us for a couple meals. This might not work if you have a really big family though. So you'll have to kind of See how that works out. You might actually have to do <laughs> like a separate meal every single day. But instant pot takes very little time to get going. You know, it'll take maybe five to ten minutes of prep. It's like throw in the piece of meat. Often for me, it's still fully frozen. I'm li- literally like getting it out of the freezer at like three o'clock or four o'clock, sticking it in the instant pot with an onion salt and spices and an onion or whatever vegetables I have in there and putting it on pressure cook. Right. So I definitely do that and try to have leftovers if that's possible. Um, Other meals that can be really easy is like, uh, again, with the instant pot, like a shredded chicken, you can take um, chicken thighs. Again, I'm, I'm a fan of bone on, but for this purpose, you can do like boneless, skinless chicken thighs with a jar of salsa and some salt, maybe some lime juice stick it on high pressure for 10 minutes and then you shred it and you can use that for any meal that you want you know you can use it for tacos you can use it on top of a salad you can use it in casserole rice bowls whatever you want to do with it that's like a really easy one so i try to just plan like a couple of my proteins and then fill in with the extras so i think of the carbs sort of like more of a condiment sort of a thing take it or leave it um, of course if you have young kids they tend to kind of need and want more carbs. So I'm usually am cooking something like potatoes or rice or other things to go with it, even if I'm personally choosing a higher percentage of my plate to be vegetables. Fill in whatever produce is in season and looks good. Um, but that's kind of how I go about it. It's a little bit lazy, but it seems to work for us. Um that might be a different case if I'm not able to cook enough to have leftovers, because typically I'm only having to cook maybe four meals, like big meals, um, out of the week because I try to have enough for leftovers. I'm not including breakfast in this because I I find breakfast to be pretty easy. I just usually it's just like eggs. Yeah, it's just (laughs) it's just pretty simple. But you can rotate through other options. Some people meal prep for breakfast and do like a couple egg bakes or frittatas, quiche kind of things, and have those on hand or um, we often do dinner leftovers for breakfast. I mean, get creative. You don't always have to stick with the same, the same thing.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. And, um, you know, I find sometimes I'm moving and moving and moving and getting in those meals, like remembering to eat until like, I until like I hit that, like, oh no, um, yeah. can be yeah. hard. Any suggestions for that?
1: Meaning like you're forgetting to eat
0: or like eating too late. Like I'm forgetting to eat and then, um, or, and, or if I do think, oh, I should go eat something. It's hard for me to find something that's like available and ready. And I don't necessarily have the time or energy to make something now. So I'm just like, okay, I'll just push it off a little bit, but then I have this crash.
1: Crash. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I personally am a fan of snacks. And so I try to keep some like blood sugar friendly snacks around, um, meaning, if, if something that you're eating is all carbohydrates, which is usually what we grab for when we're hungry, it's a physiological response. Our blood, our body sees our blood sugar is low. And then it's like, get the carbs in to raise the blood sugar. Um, not realizing that it's just going to crash right after, and you're going to be right back in that, that hunger cycle again. So I try to have things on hand that'll give me a little protein. So even if I'm having the carbs, say like I'm reaching for an apple, I have some peanut butter or almond butter with it. Um, or if I'm having a tangerine, maybe I'll have like a string cheese with it. So they can still be grab and go. Um you could also <clears throat> think about um like different pre-made options. Again, you'd kind of have to check if you can find these kosher or not, but like a beef jerky or a meat stick or a salami or some some kind of um like animal protein that's easy to grab. Um, hard-boiled eggs can be really great. I already said nuts and seeds. Um, there's some companies that make crackers that are made entirely out of cheese. And those, you're not going to have the, the crash of like a, a, you know, white flour cracker. You're going to have sort of that sustained energy from the cheese. Um, so I, I do think snacks have their place. Ultimately though, we can also look back to what was happening earlier in the day right so like did did we not eat enough at the previous meal was the previous meal maybe a little more imbalanced it could just be that it was too far in the past and you really are at a time where you need a meal or a snack and i think if it's going to be more than half an hour or an hour before you can eat um i would definitely have a snack just kind of carry you through and uh get to that get to that next meal so it may just come down to having some of those items um that are a little more macronutrient balanced or high protein just at the ready.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And are these the same kind of ideas you would think of for before bed? I find that um that like closer to the nighttime when it's like it's been a while and like they're starting to be this mm, gosh, something I need to help me keep going a little bit longer.
1: Yeah, for sure. And um, I, I think some of that might depend on the timing at which you're having dinner. Like do you eat we tend to eat a really early dinner with the kids. And so then it's like, you know, four or five hours left before we're actually as adults asleep. And that's, that's too long. So we just have a snack. And I I would say the same principles would apply. Mm -hmm. Um, But you also might consider if you're not having a super early dinner, if it's not the the matter of time, but just you're feeling really hungry after dinner, did you eat a large enough dinner? Was it high enough protein? Um, so, some of this can depend on the makeup of the dinner. Like, I notice if we have a higher carb, lower protein dinner, say like pizza or pasta, um, again, without sufficient protein alongside it, I'll be hungry because like my blood sugar just spiked and crashed. And it's just the physiological
0: response. So, uh-huh. I and, could. And that's, and that's even more likely during pregnancy because of this natural insulin. Um,
1: Probably, I mean, your your metabolic needs are higher, right? Your calorie needs are higher, so you do tend to need more food. <laughs> Absolutely, um, and of course, you need more protein, so that's a consideration.
0: So, so this is really helpful in terms of just thinking about how important real food is in um, in just the whole picture of pregnancy. So, I'm I'm really grateful we got to talk about some of these things because I think when you when you first go to that, like these first prenatal visits, um, you know, people are asking about prenatal vitamins, they're asking about weight gain, but actually like what you're eating, it's like not obvious. And, um, and, and not, nobody really seems to have like a clear answer. So thinking about things in terms of eating real food and in terms of nutritional needs, not being necessarily best absorbed, this is, I think what you were saying like that, just you know, breaking it down and taking lots of supplements isn't necessarily going to um, mean that we're going to get everything that we need.
1: Yeah, there's certainly, it depends on the quality of the prenatal. So I'll qualify it with that, but yes, there are um, certain nutrients that would be harder to get in supplemental form or that we're just not sure we're getting in the quantity that we need because the research is always changing, right? So now it's like, okay, the choline target is actually twice as high as it previously was a protein target. is 73% higher than it previous previously was. We have some of the similar evidence on like vitamin B6 and vitamin B12. Like a lot of these nutrient uh, requirements are best guesses uh, and or estimates. And so if we are focusing on just an overall well-balanced unprocessed diet, we're much more likely to check all of those boxes than if we're eating just a kind of processed food diet and then taking a prenatal um, on top of it, I really look at a prenatal as, as more of an insurance policy mm-hmm. rather than a replacement. I'm not anti prenatal. I just think we need to A, be looking at, you know, quality. They're not all created equal and B, be looking more at food as our primary source. And then if you know, for example, you know, I really don't like seafood, well, then you're probably going to want to have, say, a DHA supplement. That's like an omega-3 fat that is really found primarily in seafood. Um, It'd be hard to get enough just from an omnivorous diet that has no fish or seafood. And so maybe that's a case where you want to supplement with a fish oil or an algae-based DHA supplement to fill in that gap. So I look at supplements as like in addition to not in replacement of
0: food. Got it, got it. Um, so, thank you so much for sharing with us. This was super, super informative, and I'm really excited. I learned so much. Um, how can people find out more about your work? What's what's your website or Instagram?
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. First of all, um, my website is lilynicholsrdn.com. and for people who want to just take a look at the book Real Food for Pregnancy and see if they sort of you know, like my writing style and get a better handle on what is real food. Why is it important? Some of that research on epigenetics. um, I do give away the first chapter for free over on my site. So just click the freebies tab and you'll find it there. And that chapter also includes a nutrient breakdown of like the conventional prenatal, diet plan is literally out of the academy of nutrition and dietetics this is not my interpretation of the guidelines this is the sample meal plan they provide versus one of the ones from real food for pregnancy and then a nutritional comparison so you can see how it stacks up with you know calories macronutrients micronutrients all your vitamins and minerals it's very interesting so that is all in there and that's free um, if you do want to buy the book you can go to the books tab that links out to my bookshop or Amazon or other places where you want to get it. Um, as far as social media, I am most active on Instagram, although not as active as some people on Instagram. And my handle is the same as my website. So it's Lily Nichols RDN.
0: Okay, awesome. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.